0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the dust settling on what yesterday seemed like a monstrous war crime, but today might have been a tragedy caused by a malfunctioning missile fired by Islamic Jihad that struck the parking lot of an Episcopalian hospital in Gaza, causing casualties, but nothing on the scale of the 500 that Palestinian authorities first announced. Joining us to assess the latest available intelligence is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military and intelligence experts who has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and we will discuss his latest article at Newsweek, Why U.S. Intel Says Israel Did Not Attack Gaza Hospital. Then we'll get a local reaction to President Biden's short visit to Israel, which would have been longer had the leaders of Egypt, Jordan, and the Palestinian Authority not cancelled meetings with him. Joining us from Israel is Hagar Matar, an award-winning Israeli journalist and political activist, He is the executive director of 972 magazine, and he has a forthcoming article at The Guardian on Biden's just-concluded visit to Israel. Then finally, we'll look into Jim Jordan's second vote for Speaker, which failed today, with the House Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, getting 212 votes to Jordan's 199, with 21 Republicans voting against the insurrectionist who mobilized MAGA threats and Fox News junkyard dogs to intimidate the wavering Republicans of the Cowards Caucus. Joining us is Moira Donegan, writer-in-residence at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, whose work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Paris Review. She is a columnist at The Guardian, and we'll discuss her latest article, Why Are Republicans Failing Over and Over to Find a Speaker of the House? And joining us now is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts, who has been a consultant to a wide-ranging organizations, including the U.S. Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes: The Untold Story of Our, of our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and his latest article at Newsweek is Why U.S. Intel Says Israel Did Not Attack Gaza Hospital. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin. Thanks for having me on again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill. And the explosion that killed people that were in a parking lot next door to the Anglican Hospital in Gaza uh, obviously has largely provoked all kinds of outrage, particularly in the Middle East. But as the dust settles, and of course we always are in the environment of information wars, is it a a bit like the quote falsely attributed to Mark Twain, that a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on? Or as Jonathan Swift said, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after?
1: Well, okay, so we're not limping here let's remember that this just barely happened more than 24 hours ago. So this is the nature of the information environment today, not the nature of it in the period of Mark Twain or Jonathan Swift. That's not to say that we shouldn't ask ourselves why we are so quick to uh, respond to incidents like this with the usual playbook, which is to say that Uh, liberals and progressives are quick to blame Israel, um, that conservatives and and Washington types are quick to blame the Palestinians, um, that we are all susceptible to uh, the initial and uh, crisis-ridden response. And none of us seem to be uh, very aware of the fact that there have been dozens of incidents, just like the bombing of the Gaza hospital uh, that have happened in Afghanistan, that have happened in Lebanon, that have happened in Iraq. uh, And uh, they all follow sort of a similar playbook. And and when we slot ourselves into the same playbook, well, uh, we get what we deserve, which is that uh, we don't have the facts enough at our disposal and the history enough at our disposal to be able to read immediately what happened. What I mean to say is, I'm not admonishing people for, uh, you know, not marshalling all the facts before they spoke. I'm not admonishing people for uh, going with whatever, whatever it was that the news media was reporting. I'm more admonishing everyone for not having enough knowledge and background and history of bombing in the Middle East to be able to immediately themselves assess that there was something rotten about this uh, crisis. And, and so when I look at the response of uh, the UN Secretary General, or I look at the response of all the human rights organizations, or certainly uh, uh, the European uh, community, it seems to me like what, what, what? We've been fighting now for 20 plus years in the Middle East and, and, and have history that goes back even to the 1980s uh, and, and we seem to have learned nothing. Um, you know, I, I just on a personal note, Ian, I, I went to a dermatologist yesterday uh, because my doctor had said, well, something didn't look right. And he, he sent me to the dermatologist. And I felt like a fool because I walked into the dermatologist's office and she took one look at at me and said, oh, that's a blah, blah, blah. It's not dangerous. And it's like, oh, yeah, I get it. Like, that's what experts are supposed to do. They're supposed to be able to look at the bombing of the hospital and say, no, sorry, that's not an Israeli bomb. It's not a 2000 pound bomb. It's not 500 people dying. It's none of these things. And yet there didn't seem to be anyone out there who was either able to say that or who was willing to say it. And so that's what's got us into this uh, mess.
0: But at this point, U.S. intelligence is saying what you've been writing about in your article at Newsweek. So walk us through what U.S. intelligence is saying.
1: Well, let me just say that I, as a journalist, need to be able to say that U.S. intelligence says, but I'm also an expert because, I mean, I've written a book about the war that the U.S. and Israel got involved in in 2006, so the the Israel-Hezbollah war. And so I'm an expert, but I'm also a journalist, and as a journalist, my job is to figure out what are the facts. And the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, the Israeli Air Force, the Israeli government, uh, were casting doubts upon these reports from the very moment they uh, came out. And, and the nature of editors and the nature of journalism is, okay, well, that's what the Israelis say, but you know, what, what do others say? And it's like, okay, really? Are you asking me to say that what Hamas says or, um, or what the left says or what Middle East governments say have equal weight? And, and, and I don't think the answer is yes. So that forces me to have to go and find people in the U.S. intelligence community, first of all, who know something, second of all, who are willing to talk, um, and third of all, who who have some background that I myself can trust. So yes, U.S. intelligence concluded uh, late yesterday that uh, this was not an Israeli attack, You know, mostly because I'm guessing that the Israelis uh, just said to the US, well, we didn't have any planes in the area and we didn't, bo- we didn't have any bombs dropped in the area. So intrinsically from our own mission reports, we know that it's not us and it's not us because we didn't have any other airplanes operating in the area where uh, a, a JDAM, uh, uh, an aerial delivered precision guided munition uh, might have failed technically and hit the hospital. So that's number one. Then number two is, well, now we can also show from our own radar and correlations and the United States can show from its own satellite that uh, indeed um, the uh, Islamic Jihad or or Hamas fired uh, rockets from the same neighborhood as the hospital is located in and that the evidence on the ground, as shown in the photographs today that have been released of the parking lot adjacent to the hospital, shows uh, damage that is characteristic of, a, of not a 2,000-pound bomb, but a, a relatively small uh, rocket from a, ro- a multiple rocket launcher that evidently looks to me like exploded on or near the ground Uh, lighting a a bunch of cars on fire and and undoubtedly uh, killing and injuring some people, but the hospital itself was not hit. And the damage to the main hospital building uh, now from photographs on the ground shows rather minor shrapnel. So somebody said 500 people died in an Israeli attack on Uh, this hospital, and everybody went with that, and especially went with the 500 number, which was ubiquitous on on social media and in the news yesterday. And I, as a journalist, had to go from my expertise, which was that none of that seemed right, and then get people I knew and could trust uh, to confirm it. And then, of course, the Israelis themselves put out uh, a slew of uh, additional evidence this morning that essentially confirmed uh, what Israel said from the very beginning, which was this was not an Israeli bomb.
0: Well, you know, Hamas and the Islamic Jihad didn't, obviously don't have a lot of credibility, but the IDF, of course, you know, I recall uh, they were less than forthcoming over the death of, uh, murder of Shireen Abu Akhle, a Palestinian American journalist who was killed by an IDF sniper. So there's reason to be skeptical, obviously, but I must say, yesterday I talked to David Hurst, who's the editor of Middle East Eye in London. He was obviously outraged about what happened and even said there were up to 1,000 casualties, doctors included. So if somebody in London felt that angry and outraged. You can imagine how the Arab street feels, particularly in the neighborhood of Egypt and uh, Jordan and uh, Lebanon, and little wonder Biden wasn't able to visit Jordan and Egypt as scheduled, or even meet with the West Bank Palestinian leader, Abu Martin, who cancelled on him as did Sisi and the Jordanian king. So the damage is done instead of inflaming the so-called Arab street. Is there any way that the work that you've done and found out and others have done can actually undo some of the damage, or is it just too late?
1: Well, I think it's too late right now. I mean, I think that the narrative is slowly shifting anyhow away from Israel being uh, invaded uh, by Hamas and the surprise attack killed so many civilians to Palestinian suffering. But that also follows the pattern of these kinds of crises. Um, I, I think that it's just important to move on but not move on without any lessons learned. I mean, the lessons learned is we're not going to shape uh, uh, public opinion or 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 journalism is not going to be able to resolve this uh, in a series of stories today, uh, the the damage has already been done, and as you say, look look in a, in a world in which nobody trusts the Israelis, in a world in which nobody trusts Hamas, in a world in which nobody trusts the news media, uh, the 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 damage that was already wrought that got us to this place is is going to take a long time to undo if we indeed have any ability or interest in undoing it. But all I can do as an expert and a, and a journalist is to is to try to put the facts out there. And I can assure you that people are already reacting to my article today uh, saying, oh yeah, the same US intelligence community got that got WMD wrong in Iraq, blah, 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 blah. So therefore, let's just not believe anyone And uh, we'll only live in our own little echo chambers and believe whatever it is we want to believe. Uh, That's not going to resolve this, and it's not going to resolve it in a way that's useful to either the Palestinian people or to the Israelis. And so we're going to have now the Gaza Hospital joining the uh, Red Cross warehouse in Kabul, the Amaria shelter in Baghdad, the Uh, Kana UN uh, UN facility in Lebanon, in the annals of evidence of perfidy on the part of the Israelis or on the part of the United States, even though the record in each one of those cases is far more complicated and, uh, and in many ways, um, is in favor of the US and Israel in terms of its use of weapons and how it conducts warfare. You know, I just feel like this is the consequence of our 24-hour news cycle of social media, etc., that people were so quick to accept that Israel bombed the hospital. I'm not saying that Israel is off the hook. I mean, it, it, it has dropped some 6,000 weapons on Gaza since uh, October 7th, uh, hitting over well, almost 3,000 targets and killing as many as 3,000 civilians. But when I compare it to uh, Israel's uh, campaign in Lebanon in 2006, which is the most analogous uh, fight uh, to what's going on now in Gaza, the Israelis dropped about 10,000 bombs on Beirut uh, and the and the surrounding area uh, hit uh, multi-story buildings uh, that it associated with Hezbollah just as much as it's doing now with Hamas. Uh, carried out very similar strikes, uh, uh, you know, turned off the electricity by virtue of bombing the electricity in Lebanon, uh, cut off transportation and water, et cetera, by virtue of bombing key installations so the, the it's very analogous the end result was after x number of days 34 days in the case of Lebanon in 2006 and who knows how many days it will be now uh, in Gaza it's already been 10 uh israel would declare victory and um and indeed on the military scale they would have won the battle but they will will and did lose the war which is to say that Uh, Hezbollah is still as much of a threat to Israel as it was before, and Hamas will probably continue to be as much of a threat, if not morph into other organizations, which will take its place. So when I look at the bombing overall, I look at it in a big picture and say, well, the Israelis are following the Israeli playbook. They're going to cause a lot of damage, and they're going to do damage to Hamas, but they're certainly not going to resolve the political um, problems that lurk behind the military campaign, uh, just as Israel did with Hezbollah in Lebanon in 2006. And the hospital, to me, is just a a teaching opportunity, if you will, Ian, uh, to to make people aware of not only how important it is for them to uh, be judicious in their judgments, but also in being aware of the fact that we are fighting the same war and the same battle over and over again with no resolution. And that's what I've also written, which is that I don't think there's much prospect that Israel is going to eradicate Hamas or that Hamas is going to achieve any of its own political goals, whatever they might be vis-a-vis Israel. And that the end of all of this is just going to be more military confrontation with no political solution. Uh, The fact that the United States has aligned itself with Israel uh, militarily and uh, and, and as a consequence politically, culturally and emotionally uh, doesn't augur anything for a better outcome for the Palestinian people or for the people of Israel. Uh, or ultimately for the security of Israel. And though I understand that that's the Biden administration's approach and the US's approach, history tells me, an example tells me, uh, that 10 years from now, Israeli security isn't going to be any better and the plight of the Palestinian people isn't going to be any better. So that's how we should look at a background of the Israel war and not, Through some lens of this or that bombing or this or that event uh, is is determining the outcome. It's 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 merely part of the same uh, narrative that we have watched unfold, pretty much with every other conflict in the contemporary era in the Middle East.
0: Well, William Arkin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me on, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with William Arkin, who's a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts, who has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council, the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, And his latest article at Newsweek is Why U.S. Intel Says Israel Did Not Attack Gaza Hospital. We're going to take a B station break and back and go to Israel for a local reaction to President Biden's short visit to Israel, which would have been longer had the leaders of Egypt, Jordan, and the Palestinian Authority not cancelled meetings with him. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Israel is Hagai Matar, who is an award-winning Israeli journalist and political activist. He is the executive director of 972 magazine, and he has a forthcoming article at The Guardian about President Biden's visit. Welcome to Background Briefing, Hagai Matar. Thank
2: you very much.
0: So President Biden's visit, of course, was supposed to include visiting with the King of Jordan, and also with Sisi in Egypt, both of whom cancelled along with Abu Mazen in the West Bank. So from your perspective now in Israel, now that President Biden is on his way back to the US, what did he achieve?
2: I'm afraid in terms of any positive uh, developments, he achieved very little. Um, The one, um, not entirely marginal, uh, success is the the insistence of President Biden on Israel allowing humanitarian aid into Gaza, something without which we would have seen a humanitarian catastrophe, which we've never seen in this region before. Um, so that is obviously essential. But uh, beyond that, I think we were kind of hoping that Biden would come in and say, Israel, you've had enough, you've had two weeks, over 3000 Palestinians killed in the in, in the Gaza Strip. Um, it's time to go into a ceasefire. And we've seen the opposite. We've seen um, Biden essentially putting fuel on the flames, saying, you know, Israel is completely justified, it should go on, um, and we're going to see much more bloodshed, I'm afraid.
0: Well, guy uh, yesterday I interviewed David Hurst, the head-in-chief of the Middle East Eye in London, and he was obviously angry at what had happened to the Anglican hospital in Gaza and even suggested there could be up to a 1,000 killed. At this point, it's a little over 400 from what we're hearing. But the point is, I guess, if somebody in London is furious at the Israelis, you can imagine what has happened in in the region because the initial reports were that this was an Israeli bomb, and now we're learning that it's more likely to have been an errant rocket being fired by Islamic Jihad in Gaza itself that uh, landed on the parking lot of this hospital that was where people were in droves lots of people were there and apparently the rocket fuel also caught on fire so let's just start with that since you know we're dealing with information wars here, and it looks as though what was reported yesterday is now changed from your perspective what is the latest in israel in terms of what happened
2: I think I mean, most of the Israeli public is, is completely accepting the narrative put forward by the idea of spokesperson. Uh, this is a jihad um, misfire. Um, obviously, that was strengthened today when President Biden said that yeah, information achieved by the Pentagon um, has corroborated that. Um I think we don't know yet. We have a history of both Hamas and uh, the IDF spokesperson lying about occasions like this. Um, so it's really too early to say, and I'm guessing there will be investigators and forensic specialists that will analyze every video clip and every piece of shrapnel uh, from this uh, dreadful event. Uh, but I also think to an extent, this is a bit of a, of a red herring, the focus on this um catastrophe, which is truly terrible, I think it doesn't help to only ask the question of who is responsible. It's dreadful if it's Israel, it's dreadful if it's jihad, but that doesn't change the very real ongoing um, war outside of this one event, wherein over 3,000 people have been killed, including over 800 children um, in Israeli attacks. And before that, the massacre in the Israeli South that left over 1,300 dead, um, killed by Palestinians. All this very bloody reality is ongoing, uh, even regardless of the the hospital crisis. Um, And the need for ceasefire is is really critical uh, for for those who are being targeted, as well as the 2 million uh, people in Gaza that are suffering from lack of electricity and, and water and fuel. Uh, and the people in the Israeli south and north now, uh, as of today, that have been evacuated from their homes um, due to rocket fire. So, so you know, I think we need to look at that bigger picture as we're trying to assess the damages and the risks.
0: But I think the worst is yet to come, isn't it? I mean, uh, now that Biden has left, it's more likely that the ground invasion by the IDF will take place. And my understanding is that the strategy of the war cabinet is to eliminate hamas to literally kill all of their fighters and then turn the territory over to the un and to which whatever arab states can step up and reconstruct is that still to your mind their strategy of uh, both the war cabinet and the idf i mean they
2: keep on saying you know destroying hamas i think that's a very real question of what does that Really mean? Um, I think it was as if someone would invade the US and said, you know, I want to destroy the Republican Party. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, you have, or uh, um, well, the Democratic Party for that matter, I mean, you have a party that's in power, that has mechanisms, that has tens of thousands of members, and has many more people that support it politically. What does it mean toppling something like that? Uh, It's very unclear. It's unclear what that looks like, what Israel is imagining, um, and what Israel is imagining to come in Hamas stead. You're not going to have a Gaza Strip filled with people that are now suddenly have peaceful intentions towards Israel after yet another round of deadly violence, Um, just because you you got rid of, of certain people in government. Um, the long-term solution cannot be a military solution. So, so yes, you're very right that the ground invasion will likely happen. We're going to see much more assaults um, by Israel. Um, but where is it all leading? Nobody's giving us any answers on that.
0: So, why do you think then Hamas did what they did in that brutal attack? I mean, it sort of reminds me of a, in a way of uh, 9/11 here, and I know it's being equated as Israel's 9/11, but the U.S. response to 9/11 was essentially to take Bin Laden's bait and to move into the Middle East, where the jihadis were able to kill the Americans. You know they couldn't kill them here, except in terms of that one one-off attack. So is Israel falling into a trap?
2: Well, I, I, first of all, I want to you know be wary about those comparisons to 9/11. Obviously, the scale of the catastrophe uh, for Israel is is even larger in terms of the Uh, percent of the population killed uh, in the attack uh, by Hamas. But at the same time, I mean, the relationship between Al-Qaeda and the U.S. is nothing like the relationship between Israel and Palestinians or Israel and Hamas. Um, There is an ongoing violent um, apartheid regime controlling Palestinians throughout this land. And it's, that's the Israeli regime um, oppressing Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank and, and wherever they are. Um, and that's an ongoing decades long reality. Um, and we cannot kind of take the attack on Saturday as gruesome criminal heinous as, as it was out of that context. You can't say, you know, they just came out of nowhere to pull us into somewhere. No, we're all here. We're all in this very small piece of land living together and fighting each other constantly um, with Israelis oppressing Palestinians and Palestinians resisting. Why they went on this specific attack is interesting. I think part of it um, is an act of despair. The Palestinian struggle is in a very dire situation. It is losing allies uh, around the world. I think it's gaining uh, some more popular support, but in terms of uh, governments, it's losing support um, and all the non-violent uh, avenues for for liberation are being blocked. Uh, and at the same time, Arab nations are siding with Israel gradually. I think that is the perhaps one of the key reasons for the timing of this with Saudi Arabia about to sign uh, a normalization deal with Israel. That has been scrapped now. And I think that was the goal for Hamas. Um, I'm not sure they imagined they would be this successful in terms of uh, killing you know, 1,300 Israelis. Uh, it's just something unfathomable in the power dynamics between Israel and Hamas. Um, so, so they might have overachieved in that terrible way. Um, and I think no one anticipated just how bad it would get.
0: But how much are Israelis discussing or focused on the extent to which this is blowback against Netanyahu, whose strategy was a sort of divide-and-conquer strategy where he built up Hamas in order to weaken the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank.
2: It is being discussed. I don't think it's just Netanyahu. I mean, Netanyahu has obviously been in power for um, the better part of the past 14 years. Um, so it's definitely a lot about him, but it's not just him. So all his political allies and the opposition have had the same policies as well. Um, it is being discussed. It is being talked about, but it's not central. Um, I think a lot of people are saying, well, we need to talk about the settlement project which has failed and brought us to where we are. We need to talk about the occupation. We need to talk about the lack of alternatives, and we need to talk about how Israel is... Um, given Hamas precedent over the uh, Palestinian authority in Ramallah and the PLO. Um, We need to talk about those things, but after the war. That is kind of the, I think, the the common assumption. Right now we're fighting. When the war is over, we'll get rid of Netanyahu. When the war is over, we'll rethink our policies towards Palestinians. But now it's a unified front.
0: So as a peace activist then, does that mean that you're a little optimistic? Mm -hmm that there will be a change because I've never understood what Netanyahu and and the right the right's end game is they don't seem to want to say what seems to be obvious is that they just want the palestinians to go away and uh, i don't see that happening well that that is an end
2: game and, and i think it's a very real end game for for at least some of them uh, getting rid of as many palestinians as, as possible and m- making sure the oppression against the ones remaining is such um, that they don't dare resist, or whenever they do, the consequences are, as we're seeing right now, extremely brutal. Um, that is the end game for, for much of the right. Um, I do think, I mean, again, it's it's hard to say that I'm optimistic. I think Netanyahu has been successful in his tenure since 2009 in just removing the issue of Palestine and Palestinians from the political debate, it used to be the central question of Israeli politics. What do we do with Palestinians? Um, and that's what people would go to the polls to vote on. And for the past few years, it's just become a non-issue. The, the complete consensus of we want to sustain things as they are more or less, uh, what they call managing the conflict, keeping the status quo. Um, if there's any silver lining in this very, very, very dark, painful, traumatic time for for everyone right now It's the fact that that notion has completely collapsed. It will be impossible uh, on the day after this war to say we don't need to talk about Palestinians. Um, What I'm afraid is that the far right is going to come and say we're offering more and more extreme solutions of ethnic cleansing. uh, And and that's where people will go. But there will also be some revival of uh, a, a peace camp uh, that says we need to go back to negotiations, we need to solve this together because otherwise it's going to only get worse. Uh, And the question which of these camps will win is still up in the air.
0: But the reasons apparently or obviously that Sisi and King of Jordan and also Abu Mazen uh, cancelled Biden's visit to them or refuse to be seen with him, is that the Arab street, as it's referred to, is incredibly riled up. And whether or not, if it's proven that it was an Islamic Jihad missile that killed all of those people, I don't know that that's going to change that dynamic. So you've just described the possible environment in Israel, but is it possible that all along Israel's borders you'll have more tensions, and not to mention the possibility of Hezbollah in the north getting involved? So if you got anger in Egypt and anger in Jordan and the possibility of Hezbollah getting in, involved in military action in the north, externally, Israel looks like it's a lot worse off.
2: I agree. Um, and vis-a-vis Palestinians and, and vis-a-vis the Arab world, um, a friend of mine recently said in the context of how there's some talk in the Israeli right of really, really genocidal talk. You know, we need to Promote a second Nakba and ethnic cleansing that needs to, you know, no longer be anyone living in Gaza when this is over. There's a lot of talk like that in the Israeli right. Um, and, and I have friends saying, you know, if this is a question of us or them that stays here, it's not going to be us. I mean, just looking at at Israel in the context of the wider Middle East, there's no way that Israel survives here in the long run without reaching peace agreements with everyone. It just cannot work. Um, and the more we dig into violence and oppression uh, and, and war crimes, the harder it gets to turn back. I do hope that if you know there, there's a change in Israeli leadership and a change in Israeli public opinion, and there's a revived sense of saying we're, we take responsibility for things we've done and we need to change our policies sincerely and deeply and offer justice and equality for everyone living in this land, gradually there will be an ability to uh, create trust around that leadership and around that um, hand that is offered. Um, But so far, Israel hasn't tried that for decades, Uh, so, so it's getting harder and harder.
0: So, Haggai, just in the last couple of minutes, is there any possibility of the Abraham Accords being revived? I mean, when I talked about the Arab leaders in the neighborhood shunning Biden's visit prior to that, of course, Secretary of State Blinken went to Saudi Arabia to talk to Mohammed bin Salman, and MBS kept him waiting for hours and then eventually canceled the meeting. And clearly, I think he's doing that because, again, his fears of the Arab street, even though he runs an incredibly repressive regime. So they don't look like they're in a the mood to make a deal. No, I
2: think, I mean, in the Palestinian context, which I think is, is the most important one um, for us, for Israelis and Palestinians in this land, the most uh, essential issue, a failure of the Abraham Accords is something to actually hope for. Um, the Abraham Accords have enabled Israel to to continue oppressing Palestinians. Um, the notion that peace with the Arab world is dependent on Israel uh, reaching peace and offering justice to Palestinians has been one of the bargaining chips for Palestine, one of the very few bargaining chips that Palestinians had through the years. And they've been seeing that bargaining chip kind of slip through their fingers, uh, with Saudi Arabia being the last of these countries to uh, threaten to basically flip sides and ally with Israel and throw Palestinians under the bus. So I think if if there's some uh, deterrence and, and, and Arab nations and Arab countries, stay on the side of Palestinians and tell Israel, you can't override Palestinians. You have to go through Palestinians if you want peace with us. Uh, that will actually promote peace in the long run, because it will force Israel, hopefully or encourage Israel, to to recognize um, the necessity to negotiate with Palestinians, and through that make more sustainable peace throughout the region.
0: Well, Haggai Matar, thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Haggai Matar who joined us from Israel. He's an award-winning Israeli journalist and political activist and the executive director of 972 magazine, and he has a forthcoming article at The Guardian about President Biden's just-concluded visit to Israel. We're going to take a brief station break. we back looking into Jim Jordan's second failed attempt to be elected speaker and how in spite of him mobilizing MAGA threats and Fox News dunkard dogs to intimidate the wavering Republicans of the Cowards Caucus. It could. Solomon, never round here. To have Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Moira Donegan, who's a writer and resident at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, whose work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum and the Paris Review. She's a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is, Why Are Republicans Failing Over and Over to Find a Speaker of the House? Welcome to Background Briefing, Moira Donegan.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Moira. And they did it again (laughs) today, uh, starting at uh, 11 o'clock Eastern. And uh, the vote to get Jim Jordan as the new speaker failed with the Democrats getting 212 votes and the Republicans 199, with 21 Republicans voting against Jim Jordan. Now, in the real world, if you have more votes in an election, you normally win. So is this another example of America's peculiar counter-majoritarian set up here because Hillary Clinton won 3 million more votes than Donald Trump in 2016. So she should have become president according to the way the rest of the world operates. And the same would have happened in 2000 with Al Gore. So is this another example of the peculiarities of counter-majoritarian vote rigging in the United States?
3: Well, it's definitely a procedural quirk, Ian. Uh, But I think it's also, you know, evidence of the internal dysfunction within the Republican Party. This is a group of people who cannot agree on a number of policy questions, but really more crucially, in my understanding, is that they can't agree on their approach to the institutions that they are seeking to control. And, you know, you see a real deep divide within the Republican Party right now uh, on how functional they want the government to be, on what sort of compromises they are willing to make, with uh, the Democratic minority and on, um, you know, uh, <laughs> basic questions like uh, in Jim Jordan's case, like whether the 2020 election was legitimately decided. So, you know, these are divisions that are really riving the Republican Party in two. They seem to have become increasingly personal and they are leading to dysfunction, not just in the House of Representatives, but in the federal government as a whole.
0: But we're told that nobody much likes Jim Jordan, and that's not hard to uh, to accept because he's such an odious character uh, who does nothing but scream and rant and tear things down. And we know that John Boehner referred to him as a legislative terrorist, and we know that he he asked Trump for a pardon because he knows what he was deep into the insurrection. And Liz Cheney recently said that nobody knew more about the January 6th insurrection than uh, did Jim Jordan. And, you know, we also know that a lot of Republicans don't like Donald Trump, but they support him. So what's going on in in that regard? Why do we have in the Republican conference the kind of cowards caucus?
3: You know, there is a a tremendous... uh, Like well of dislike for Jim Jordan within the Republican conference. But that seems to have been true of his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, as well. And, you know, personal uh, animus would not be disqualifying. But I think it's something that really was the kiss of death for Jim Jordan was a tactic that he decided to take over the course of this weekend, where, you know, uh, facing the need to rally support for his bid, he really enlisted conservative media and attempted to rile up uh, the worst of the base. And some of the members of Congress from the Republican side who had not yet pledged their support to Jordan received some quite uh, odious, you know, some would say threatening messages and, you know, ominous uh, emails requesting comment from Fox News personalities. And they felt that they were being intimidated. And I think that, you know, like with the question of uh, the legitimacy of the 2020 election, the threats that are faced to Republican members of Congress from this very animated, very passionate, very uh, potently right wing Republican base are not just threats to their jobs or their reputations, as formidable as such threats might be, but they're also really, um, threats to their safety. These are an American base or a Republican base, a section of the American electorate that is, um, you know, have demonstrated repeatedly that they are comfortable with violence, that is, you know, the ideological sector of the American public that is responsible for the majority of our domestic terrorism, and that is disproportionately armed. Uh, So that was, you know, a tactic that Jim Jordan thought he could employ. He thought he could uh, conscript the electoral and physical fear of the Republican base in his service, Uh, but it really seems to turn a lot of people off. Uh, People, instead of being cowed by these messages that were being sent to them on Jim Jordan's behalf, uh, threatening people who were insufficiently supportive of him, it seems to have made these Republican members of Congress uh, personally determined to oppose Jim Jordan's speakership, and he has been hemorrhaging votes ever since.
0: Well, but he's still, we're only talking about 21 votes against him. So there's only 21 Republicans with the guts to stand up to this guy and his disgusting tactics. And in terms of intimidation, the intimidation is such by these MAGA people and by Trump, who's also one of the leading employers of this kind of tactic of intimidation. Mitt Romney, who's clearly gone against Trump, he spends $5,000 a day to protect himself and his family. I mean, it's absolutely disgraceful. Then I don't understand why there. I mean, maybe that's why Jim Jordan wants to shut down the FBI and the Department of Justice, right?
3: You know, possibly it's, it's becoming uh, less and less tenable for Republican politicians to take an anti Maga line, and this has always been uh, sort of a fictitious, or at least not a particularly potent part of the Republican Party. Really, since uh, Donald Trump uh, secured his grasp on the Republican presidential nomination in 2016, you know the um, the nominal opposition to Trump has been more comfortably voiced in private by these politicians than avowed in public, and it has been, it should say, dwindling. Uh, you know, you see right now in the ongoing 2020 uh, Republican presidential party, such as it is, you see this moneyed base that is um, this fundraising base, I should say, of the Republican Party that is sort of casting around for a Trump alternative. Because the pact that they made with uh, the Republican Party mm. was for a sort of austerity for tax cuts. For, you know, corporate patronage in exchange for, you know, uh, extensive funding and uh, political stability and that uh, bargain that the large scale money donors made with the Republican Party really fell apart under Trump, who is, you know, anathema to political stability, who is very willing to provide uh, tax cuts to the wealthy in terms of his policy, but it's also increasingly um you know, sort of populist in his rhetoric, and who has been able to feed into resentments that this moneyed base of donors, uh, you know, is more nervous about. And so there has been sort of an attempt by these donors, by the donor class, by the pundit class on the right to reorient The party to a pre-Trump status quo to find somebody like maybe Vivek Ramaswamy or maybe like Ron DeSantis or maybe like Nikki Haley or maybe like Tim Scott who might be a plausible challenger to Trump who can um, you know reorient and sort of undo the past you know six or seven years of politics on the right and you know the cat is out of the bag you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. You can't un the Republican Party. And these uh, politicians who have attempted to straddle that line, people like Mitt Romney, find themselves, you know, politically marginal, uh, devoid of influence and uh, personally endangered. So, you know, there's not a ton of incentive for uh, Republicans to oppose the MAGA base. You know, that's where their primary voters are. That's where increasingly, uh, you know, more and more of the small dollar fundraising is. And that's where that political safety is. But it's also not an orientation that is amenable to actual governing. You know, you can't please the MAGA base and also uh, do your job well as a sitting congressman. Those are opposite incentive structures, mutually exclusive incentive structures. I think we're really seeing uh, the growing incapacity, uh, incompatibility of the Republicans uh, to actually govern.
0: Well, it does seem, though, that Trump goes from strength to strength. The more indictments against him, the more people double down in their support for him and the more money he shakes out of his followers. So the extent to which Jim Jordan is a stalking horse, he's he's a loyal toady to Donald Trump. If things had turned out differently today uh, and Jim Jordan to become Speaker, then Trump would effectively own the House of Representatives along with Being a front runner for the presidency, so should we therefore be thankful for small mercies?
3: You know, I think Donald Trump already is wielding a sizable influence within the Republican House Caucus. You know, he has the ear and the sworn loyalty not just of uh, people like Jim Jordan, but also you know very influential and increasingly you know vocal. Bomb throwing congressmen such as Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Matt Gates, you know, who is largely responsible for um, Kevin McCarthy's exit from the speakership. So I think, uh, you know, in terms of saving the Republican House conference from Donald Trump's influence, I think that ship may have already failed.
0: So, what do you think the chances are of them cobbling some kind of deal together here with the acting speaker pro tem? As a caretaker for a while and giving him, at the moment he doesn't have the powers of the speakership, but giving him the ability to actually be a speaker on a temporary basis, maybe 30 days or so. I mean, 30 days is, well, we're 29 days away from a government shutdown, aren't we?
3: We are. So the resolution, the continuing resolution that cost Kevin McCarthy his job only funds the government until, I believe, November 17th. So the clock is ticking and the House is currently incapable of functioning even in the somewhat dysfunctional uh, manner that it was uh, operating under Republican majority when it had a speaker. There is talk now about a compromise that would encourage the acting speaker pro temp, who is currently not empowered to actually run the House, uh, to give that person uh, greater authority to act as speaker even without a formal vote, which I think goes to show you how little confidence the House Republicans have in their own ability to govern. They don't think they can elect a speaker, and I think they might be right.
0: Well, I again, going back to the counter-majoritarian nature of it, that Hakeem Jeffries wins uh, by 212 votes to Jordan getting 199. But the other, what's embedded in that, though, Moira, which is really distressing, is that on so many important uh, issues that the government faces, and, and particularly the House of Representatives. For example, funding Ukraine, there's a, there's a bipartisan majority to fund Ukraine, but they can't get it on the floor. I mean, that's, again, the tyranny of the minority, which is is so built into, you know, with the Electoral College and other things. That's why I started out by s- suggesting that this was an example of it, you know.
3: Yeah, you know, in order to elect a speaker, uh, the House, needs to vote for a candidate with an outright majority of members of the House. And um, the Republicans uh, have been trying to do basically all of their governing without any compromise with the Democrats. And the Democrats have uh, been, in comparison, uh, exerting almost a military discipline. They are not defecting from their votes for speaker. They are not helping the Republicans clean up this mess. They are allowing the Republican Party to own and be seen in their own dysfunction, which I think is a politically good idea. Uh, however, it does mean that the country is and you know the nation and its uh, obligations abroad are also being left at the mercy of Republican dysfunction. Uh, this is not a party that is capable of leading the country; it is not a party that is capable of maintaining uh, America's obligations and interests overseas. And, you know, I think it's going to be a very rough next few months in particular for the Ukrainians.
0: Well, I guess that explains why Kevin McCarthy still blames the Democrats for his downfall when it was Matt Gates, right?
3: Yeah, he's uh, been blabbing into every microphone he can find that uh, the Democrats had an obligation to vote for him and to prevent him from uh being ousted by his own party under the terms that he agreed to and you know i think that that is um very typical of politicians trying to blame everybody else for their own failures but the democrats uh have no obligation to clean up the republicans mess
0: well i thank you for joining us and more i appreciate it
3: thank you so much ian it was a, it was a pleasure